Welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington. In this episode, we discuss ongoing tensions between Iran and the U.S. under coronavirus, Donald Trump's policy of maximum pressure towards Iran, and chances for diplomacy between Tehran and Washington. My guest this week is Barbara Slavin, director of the Future of Iran Initiative at the Atlantic Council, a lecturer in international affairs at George Washington University, and a columnist for Al Monitor. She is the author of Bitter Friends, Bossom Enemies, Iran, the U.S., and the Twisted Path to Confrontation. Barbara, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you. So let's start from the news of today. There's been almost a week of protests across the U.S. and here in D.C. where we both live. We see some brutality against the protesters. We see some violence scenes. Some of them even remind us of, I saw you comparing one of the scenes to what you've seen in 2009 in Iran. And Iranian officials have started to chime in, issuing statements, criticizing racism and police brutality in the U.S. Even though when protests happened in Iran, Iranian officials tell other countries that it's a domestic issue and none of their business. And when we see um, these images here in the U.S. and everything that's happening and the president bringing in the military to defy the protesters or Republican congressmen saying that they should be treated like terrorists, do you think the U.S. will lose moral authority to stand up for human rights in other countries and other places in the world, especially in the Middle East and in a place like Iran, where U.S. officials condemn abuses of human and civil rights. Yeah, um, you know, I think that the U.S. has already lost so much moral authority over the last few years because of, in particular, things like the travel ban, uh, the treatment of uh, of Mexican and Central American refugees at our southern border, Uh, the uh, attitude that the president has expressed toward people of color, um, you know, these things, uh, it's almost not shocking in a way that he's behaving as he is now. He is very much identified with a kind of white nationalism, uh, and uh, certainly there's a lot of Islamophobia as well. Uh, so I don't think that people around the world are, are, are that shocked. Uh, that said, I think what is surprising is the numbers of people who are coming out and really uh, risking their safety in order to protest these policies. It's been very, very impressive. When it comes to Iran, I mean, this is kind of silly. It's, it's really crocodile tears. I don't think that Javad Zarif or any of the Iranian officials who are beating their chests about human rights abuses in the United States uh, are doing it because they really care about the poor, suffering African-Americans. Uh, they're simply doing it to score political points. And uh, I mean, perhaps rightfully so, since Iran has been very much under pressure, maximum pressure, from the United States, even when it was still in uh, compliance with the nuclear deal. So this is this is politics, you know, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. Right. And do you think this is showing us sort of a politicization of human rights, not just on the side of the Iranians, but also from the U.S. and even some other Western governments? Because we see, we hear criticism from people towards Western governments for not condemning what's happening in the U.S., whereas if this was happening somewhere in the Middle East, everyone would be so quick to condemn and criticize it. Do you think this is uh, giving us more of a view of how human rights is being um, used as 
as a tool, basically in a toolbox for political purposes and not because, let's say, Mike Pompeo or Donald Trump care about protesters in Iran. Yeah. Well, I've always felt that the Trump administration has been very selective in its outrage about human rights abuses. Uh, if it's in Iran uh, or some other uh, country that is an adversary of the United States, they're very quick to jump on it. But if it's in Saudi Arabia, uh, we don't see the same reaction. And even when it comes to, to China, uh, you know, President Trump, 30 uh, odd years ago, supported the Chinese in, when they cracked down on Tiananmen. Uh, and uh, was very supportive of these kinds of tough methods, you know. So uh, if they're upset about Hong Kong now, it's kind of hard to believe that this is, this is really sincere. Now let's talk about President Trump's policy towards Iran. It's been two years since he pulled out of the JCPOA, the Iran deal, promising a better deal, a new deal that's so much better than the last one, which he called the worst deal ever. And um, we've seen a policy of maximum pressure towards Iran. Sanctions have been reimposed and the rhetoric coming from the White House has been mostly hawkish and very tough. Um, The two countries have just been on a path of increased tension. Do you see any prospects for any kind of diplomacy between Tehran and Washington, at least for the next few months until uh, Trump still is in the White House um, and um, the continuation of this maximum pressure policy? Well, I think the only area where we've seen uh, some progress may see some more is on prisoner swaps, uh, which uh, appears to be in the interest of both countries. Um, But in terms of other kinds of negotiations, no, I don't see anything until our elections. I think uh, Iranian officials are waiting very wisely to see if Trump is reelected or not. Um, If it's Joe Biden, they know that there there are much better prospects of a return uh, to negotiations, of a U.S. return to the JCPOA. So why bother with Trump, frankly? Certainly, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, uh, is a tr- is a huge Iran hawk. Uh, the State Department every week puts out this thing called "This Week in Iran Policy." They don't do that for any other country, in which they summarize all the things they've done to make life miserable for the Islamic Republic in that week. Uh, so it's very hard to see uh, any prospect. But if Trump is is reelected, perhaps we could see some movement. It's just it's it's hard to envision now. Uh, What do you think would happen if President Trump does get reelected? And then we're going to talk about a potential Biden presidency later. But let's say if he does get reelected in November, how do you think things would change within his administration and then the thinking in Tehran that could maybe open the door for more diplomacy? Well, Iran has been under severe sanctions, as you mentioned, and it, it really needs relief. Um, I think there there would be some interest, perhaps, in, in talks. Uh, also, typically, uh, American presidents, even very hawkish ones, tend to change in their, in their second terms. Uh, think of George W. Bush, uh, Mr. Axis of Evil, had no real contact with Iran except for back-channel talks after 9-11, and refused to be part of nuclear negotiations, really left it all to Britain, France, and Germany. But then in his second term, uh, he realized... Uh, And then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice realized that the United States was more isolated than Iran was over these issues. And we saw the creation of what became the P5 plus one. Uh, Policy changed. 
Um, that was also a function of the situation in Iraq, which had gotten worse and worse, in part because of the tension between the United States and Iran. So it is conceivable that you know there would be a different policy. And of course, a president in his second term doesn't have to worry about re-election, uh, so tends to be freer, particularly in terms of foreign policy. Um, Nixon, in his uh, in his second term, uh, uh, you know, had a lot of breakthroughs with Russia and China, things that had begun in his first term, but then were extended into a second. So, we could hope, right? Even even Obama, second term, we got the JCPOA. That's right. Um, so let's say President Trump does win, as you're saying, there might be some openings and the possibility. Do you think someone like Mike Pompeo? who is the chief U.S. diplomat right now, and he's had a very hawkish rhetoric and stance on Iran um, consistently, even sometimes when the president comes out and speaks of dialogue and um, paths to diplomacy and potential deal. It seems like Mike Pompeo has been pretty consistent in his hawkish views and the 12 demands or conditions that he's had for Iran, which go beyond anything that Trump has ever uh, publicly said. Do you think he would be capable or the right person to conduct um, such diplomacy with Tehran, even under a second Trump term? Well, I don't think he would be the Secretary of State anymore. Uh, typically, there's a change in those positions. And of course, we've seen much more change and rotation even in the first Trump term than is normal in administrations. But I would doubt that he would continue in, in that position. Uh, you know, there were people who were hoping, frankly, that he would quit and run for Senate from Kansas and leave the State Department in the hands of the number two, Steve Began, who is a much more traditional pro-diplomacy Republican than, than Pompeo is. And let's talk about a potential Biden presidency. If Joe Biden does win the election in November and he becomes the president, he was the vice president to President Obama, who cut a deal, basically a historic agreement with Iran, happened in their administration. What do you think would happen? Would he immediately rejoin the JCPOA? Would he try to renegotiate? Would diplomacy be possible with Iran um, come January of next year? Well, a lot of people have been thinking about this and thinking about ways to get back in. Uh, I myself am working with some colleagues on ideas for Europe to be a sort of a bridge back in for the United States, uh, because obviously with elections and so on, it's difficult. It would be difficult for uh, any progress to be made, even if Biden is elected um, in November, he still has to wait until he takes office and puts a team in. Uh, yeah, I think very much so. Um, I'm not sure that there would be an automatic return on all sides to the JCPOA as it was before, but a lot of people are talking about a freeze for freeze where the U.S. would provide limited sanctions relief in return for Iran, taking no more steps out of the JCPOA, and then kind of a roadmap back into full compliance, lifting of sanctions, and then follow-on negotiations. Because let's face it, the JCPOA has shown itself to be deficient for all sides, really. Iran did not get the sanctions relief, uh, the reliable sanctions relief it, that it was promised. And there are other aspects of the agreement, particularly the sunsets and so on, that are of concern to a lot of people in this country. So I think um, there would be room for new negotiations, 
on, on nuclear issues and also parallel talks on, on regional uh, conflicts, which definitely need to be addressed much more so than they have been. I mean, Trump has fanned the flames of divisions in the Middle East. He hasn't done anything to resolve them. Well, speaking of the regional issues, some in Iran, more in the moderate and reformist camps, were talking about a JCPOA 2 or Barjom Do after the first agreement was made, um, basically encouraging the administration or the entire system to go into more negotiations on regional issues. Um, well, that didn't happen because the Obama presidency ended and then President Trump started a completely new uh, approach towards Iran, but do you see a possibility for that kind of a regional dialogue and how do you think it should go and what, dire- in what direction and uh, what kind of a role should the U.S. administration play in that? Well, I think it's primarily up to the region, but I think the P5 plus one can be supportive of, of the process, uh, actively encouraging, for example, uh, the Saudis and the Iranians to talk to each other. There, there are a number of um, international documents, uh, historical precedents. There's the resolution that ended the Iran-Iraq war. It has a paragraph that, that uh, empowers the UN Secretary General to look into uh, relaxation of, tank, of tensions in the region. There's the uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe that was set up during the Cold War. Uh, for East-West dialogue. So there are a lot of different formats, um, but it's ultimately going to be, I think, the GCC, Iraq, and Iran um, that have to sit down. Uh, You might broaden it and include the Arab League to some extent as well. I mean, we have conflicts in Libya that, a lot of conflicts where it's not just Iran that's meddling, it's the UAE, it's uh, Turkey, other countries. So we'd have to think about the, the, the various formats, but definitely there should be some sort of institution that, or forum that allows these security concerns to be raised. And the, the permanent members of the Security Council should be supporting the efforts of the region, uh, maybe providing an initial sort of start uh, for, for meetings um, you've got countries in the region like Oman and Kuwait that are relatively neutral. They can be really helpful in this. Um, and I think the region is crying out for an end to conflicts in places like Syria and Yemen. Uh, I'm sure a Biden administration would take a much more proactive approach. Um, there was a recent article in, I think, Foreign Affairs uh, that was co-authored. One of the, uh, the co-authors was Jake Sullivan, of course, was, was an advisor. Uh, to Biden and to President Obama and to Hillary Clinton uh, on a need for a, a real diplomatic surge in the Middle East. Um, going back to the JCPOA for a moment, um, you talked about some of the concerns in this country. One of the issues that's been talked about is the arms embargo on Iran and the deadline for that that's coming up this fall. And the approach of the Trump administration, basically, we've heard Mike Pompeo and Brian Hook in the State Department um, trying to say that the U.S. or pretending that the U.S. is still part of the JCPOA, even though President Trump has clearly pulled out of the deal two years ago. How do you think that is going to play out in the UN Security Council? Will this argument hold much ground? How will the Russians and the Chinese react to it? How will the European Union um, be positioned as far as the US demands and the actions of the past two years? 
yeah, I don't think it's going to fly. <laughs> uh, the Russians, the Chinese, uh, even the Europeans have all said that there is no way that this embargo can be uh, extended uh, in the UN Security Council. You know, it's technically, it's not part of the JCPOA, it's part of the UN Security Council resolution that codified the JCPOA. So there, there's no way that the U.S., even if it still claims somehow that it's still a participant in the JCPOA, which is ridiculous uh, because it quit, um, it, it, it cannot use that to, to extend this arms embargo. I'm not too nervous about it. In fact, Atlantic Council is, is having an event uh, June the 10th on this issue. We're going to put out a bunch of papers on it. Um, Iran doesn't have a lot of money to spend on, on you know, fancy new weapons. It likes to build a lot of its stuff indigenously. I don't think we're going to see a surge of new weaponry uh, into Iran. Uh, and Iran has been violating the, the arms embargo anyway by providing rockets and whatnot to the Houthis and militias in Iraq and, and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, so this is really kind of more symbolic, I, I think, than, than, than a really major issue. Uh, it, this arms embargo should expire, um, and then other provisions can be made to try to limit uh, the provision of certain weapons to, to Iran, but it can't be done through the UN Security Council. And let's talk about um, the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic. That's an issue in the entire world right now. It's affecting populations, economies. But Iran is actually in a unique position, one of the very few countries in the world that's dealing with all of this under economic sanctions, U.S. sanctions that have had a serious impact on the Iranian economy. Uh, but then at the same time, there's there's an opening or a chance maybe for corona diplomacy somewhere encouraging the administration, the U.S. government to use this opportunity for more diplomacy with Iran. And we know there's precedence under President Obama, under even President Bush, a Republican, after earthquakes in Iran. Um, do you think the Trump administration will eventually consider um, a similar move to their predecessors? And regardless of what the administration does, how do you think this opportunity should be approached? Well, I don't think they're doing very much. Um, they could certainly do a lot more. There was some guidance that came out from the Treasury Department, but uh, the reporting requirements are so onerous that it's doubtful that uh, that these provisions will be used. There are a couple of things that the Europeans have set up. There's Instex. There's also a Swiss uh, financial channel that's been blessed uh, by the United States. And I'd like to see these used a lot more. Uh, and the U.S. basically giving um, a green light uh, or at least a yellow light to uh, foreign companies to uh, provide humanitarian goods to, to Iran. Um, I'd like to see the U.S. Uh, you know, allow an IMF loan that the Iranians have requested to go through. Uh, the IMF is, has been, quote-unquote, studying this request, I don't know, for several months now, and um, it's not clear uh, when this might go through, but the U.S. doesn't have the votes to block it, um, so it would be good if, if, if it did go through. Um, this is a tremendous opportunity also for the region, and we've seen some help that the Emiratis have provided, I think the Kuwaitis also, to Iran. All of the countries in that part of the world have been hard hit. Their economies have been hard hit, both by COVID and by the collapse in oil prices. And this is a great time, again, for the region to begin to work together to begin to try to overcome some of the rivalries 
uh, that have really held all of them back in the past. It's not time for anybody to be wasting money on expensive new weapons, which, as we've seen, have not done very much to protect the interests of countries like Saudi Arabia. And speaking of coronavirus, and earlier we talked about prisoners and a potential swap, and these two are also connected because um, in in all prisons, frankly, around the world, and including Iranian prisons, and here in the U.S., there's a chance of con- higher chance of contracting the virus when you're in a prison. And we know there's some dual nationals, some Americans imprisoned in Iran, and Iran has also been talking about some Iranians who've been imprisoned in the U.S. for evading sanctions and other reasons. Do you think um the the both sides both sides have been talking about this but do you think they're doing enough or there is there anything happening behind the scenes that makes you hopeful that there will be more prisoner swaps or um, how do you think this is going to be approached in the corona time well the us has just released an iranian and there's a lot of talk that uh, mike white who's a a Navy veteran who's been jailed in Iran and has been in poor health that he may may come out soon. I mean, we are talking on June the 2nd, right? Um, and so I don't know when this is going to be broadcast, but it may be that the swap has already taken place by the time this comes out, and I really hope that happens. Uh, we have seen that the Iranians have allowed some of these uh, prisoners uh, furlough from jail uh, to protect their health. Not all of them, unfortunately. I'm particularly concerned about Siamak Namazi, uh, who has been uh, in prison for, my God, is it coming on five years now? I mean, it's just outrageous. Um, he really needs to be to be freed. Um, but uh, at least we've seen Nazanin Radcliffe, the uh, British Iranian, we've seen Mike White anyway, uh, allowed out of prison so that they are less exposed to COVID. And um, speaking of more, let's say, joint interests between Iran and the U.S., it's four decades now of tensions and hostility after the 1970 Iranian Revolution. There's a long list of grievances on both sides. On the Iranian side, as it goes all the way back to 1953, the coup um, that has left uh, memory and some Iranians in the psyche of some Iranians. And then it's a long list from the hostage crisis to the Iran air flight, the Beirut bombings and etc. It comes all the way to today. What do you see as areas of joint interest? Under the previous administration, we saw more push even by the government for people-to-people connections and sports and art. What do you think should be those areas of joint interest that both sides can uh, basically see as somewhere they can come closer instead of further from each other? Yeah, one of the, the real casualties of the whole collapse of the JCPOA has been people-to-people engagement, something that that I've very strongly supported over the years. Um, You know, we benefit a lot from connections, particularly with Iranian academia. Uh, They have fantastic scientists there, mathematicians, uh, computer specialists, artists, uh, medical uh, doctors, really just tremendous people. And before uh, the Trump administration, there was a robust program uh, supported by the State Department for um, international visitors uh, from Iran to come here, uh, uh, environmental work, agriculture, water management, so many different areas. And all of this has been lost. It's going to be difficult to restore. There's a lot of suspicion now on all sides. Uh, Certainly the types of uh, 
individuals who are coming into more power in Iran now are very suspicious, unfortunately, of these kinds of contacts. So it's not going to be easy. Um, but I hope a way can can be found uh, because it, it hurts both societies, especially, of course, the U.S. has a huge diaspora um, and Iran would benefit from having members of that diaspora go back and give expertise uh, and invest. And uh, I have written, and I, I believe this profoundly, that the Islamic Republic of Iran will not be uh, a true success, will not fulfill its potential until it, A, has full diplomatic relations with the United States, and B, uh, begins to treat its diaspora better. Uh, this was the, the model that uh, communist China used to break out of extreme poverty and isolation back in the late 1970s, early 1980s. It's tried and true, and uh, if Iran is not going to embrace its diaspora, if it's not going to eventually give up the whole notion of the great Satan and, and look for a restored diplomatic relationship with the United States, it's just not going to be the country that it could be. So I, I hope I live to see it. I really do. I would love to be able to go back to Iran and see an, uh, an American embassy open again. I would love to see the two countries stop uh, arresting um, uh, individuals uh, for uh, phony crimes uh, I would really like to see this end because we are both societies are impoverished by the lack of contact. Um, I also wanted to talk about your travels to Iran. I'm glad you brought it up. You have traveled to Iran many times. You've seen the country, you've seen the people, you've reported from Iran. Tell us about your experience of the country, of the politics, of the people, something that Americans can't really see without going to the country, not through the lens of the media or their own politicians or fellow travelers, but some things that maybe surprise you when you actually went there and visited for yourself. Well, I tell you, it was a lot like going to the old Soviet Union in the 1970s, which I did as a student. Um, you know, the government propaganda was very harshly anti-American, but the people were so welcoming. I was treated beautifully. I was invited into homes. Um, many people said, you know, we don't believe the government propaganda and, and you know, and, and we love America. We don't want death to America. Uh, we have family there. We know it's a good country and we know, uh, you know, of, of, about democracy and freedom and all the rest. So, uh, you know, it was, it was lovely to have that experience. I think the other thing I really hadn't appreciated was how um, incredibly tough uh, and liberated most Iranian women, or at least many Iranian women, because you just see the stereotypical women in the black chador. And you know, even on my first trip, which was in 1996, I met uh, women writers and lawyers and artists uh, who were just so vibrant and creative and, and brave and, you know, live their lives the way they wanted to live. They just didn't really give a damn. And, and the society over, over time has evolved so much. I think it's very modern. I think it's very practical, uh, very non-ideological, also not very religious. The United States is much more religious than Iran is. Very few people, uh, you know, maybe there are certain holidays, certain times of the year and so on, but, but uh, people don't go to mosques, many of them, on a regular basis partly because religion has been so politicized by the Islamic Republic. And even if you're a believer, you don't want political Islam. You want your own Islam. So I was surprised. I was surprised by that, too. Finally, I mean, it's a very big country, and the 
topography is very varied. Uh, parts of it look like the American Southwest. Part, parts are semi-tropical. Um, so I was kind of blown away by the beauty of the country, the beauty of the architecture. Cities like Isfahan, which are absolute jewels. Uh, the quality of the craftsmanship, jewelry, furniture, modern art, uh, textiles, far beyond the, the Persian rugs that, that we know in the West. And last but not least, oh, the food. <laughs> food is so good. Um, and uh, there are many dishes there that I now try to make in my own home because they're just so fantastic. Things like like Fesinjun and, and Tadik, um, you know, they're just magnificent. The soups, uh, Ashirashte. Uh, wonderful food, uh, very subtle in flavor, um, not like Middle Eastern food, not like Indian food, somehow uh, something in between and, and uniquely itself. So these were all things that I, I really got to enjoy. Uh, and um, I love doing reporting trips. One other thing, people always talk to me. Um, they were much more open, frankly, than they were in a lot of the Arab countries I had covered uh, in the past. And you know, willing to to give me their names again, very brave about saying who they were and what they believed, and and the politics too. Um, you know, it's not monolithic, as you know. There are a lot of different factions, a lot of different views. Um, reformist ideas often get suppressed, but they're still there, very much there in the society. And I always think that if there's less U.S. pressure from the outside, that these more reformist ideas can really flourish in the country. What we do with maximum pressure is we strengthen the most hardline elements, we stifle reform, and we make everyone who talks about anything pro-Western suspect in the eyes of the government. So it's, it's really a tragedy. Um, all the so-called democracy promotion groups in Washington should realize how devastating sanctions and pressure are to the cause of democracy. Well, speaking of that, and you also talked about the Iranian diaspora, there's now a lot of pressure from the outside for some kind of regime change in Iran, a collapse of the regime or regime change. And there's a smaller but very strong opposition in the Iranian diaspora, some here in Washington. And, um, you know, there's the Mujahideen Akhar, there's the son of Iran's former Shah Reza Pahlavi. Do you see a viable scenario, any possibility for a regime change, an imminent regime regime change, as some are saying, every time there's protests in Iran, they expect an imminent regime change. Do you see any scenario for that happening? And if even if it does, is there a viable alternative, any part of this diaspora or anyone else who can take over after the potential collapse of this regime? No, I really think that the, the, the exiles are largely irrelevant to the process uh, in Iran. I hate to say that. Um, but if, you know, the, the changes need to come from within the country, my fear is that um, it would go, frankly, in a more authoritarian, militaristic uh, direction, more direct control by the IRGC uh, than there even is now, with the clerics really just sort of a facade for, for military rule in the country. Um, and it's, it's a great shame. Um, but no, I don't see the people outside. I think the longer you are outside the country, the less relevant you become. And we rarely see exiles go back and take over. I think the, the only examples as we have are when the U.S. military has gone in with 150,000 troops uh, uh, or, or more, um, you know, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and actually installed uh, exiles 
um, in positions of, of authority in these countries. Otherwise, it, it generally does not happen. Barbara, thank you very much for your time and thank you for joining the Iran podcast. You're very welcome. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Subscribe to us on your podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. Until next time, goodbye.